and you're going to keep writing until it's not fun. Will it ever not get fun? When will it not be fun, Jeff Kabush? Uh, well, I don't know. I kind of laugh at some retirement announcements I always see because I'm never, I'm not going to retire from riding my bike. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's what attracted to me to the sport was the lifestyle. And, I mean, yeah, like, not like a professional swimmer when they quit the sport they never want to see a pool again i mean i'm always gonna enjoy riding my bike and um yeah going on adventures today's podcast is sponsored by team adair cross-country mortgage George grew up in Sonoma County and knows what it means to act locally. His mortgage company has your best interest at heart. As a sponsor of the Grasshopper Adventure Series, everyone can get a $2,200 discount off of their next purchase or refinance. First-time homebuyer, no problem. Reach out to George and his team and they can help you out. Since purchasing our home 20 years ago, we've refinanced several times and during COVID we needed to do something to act quick to keep our family solvent it saved us over $400 by refinancing with Team Adair and Cross Country Mortgage look at the link in our bio or go to crosscountrymortgage.com slash affinity slash grasshopper for the special offer our guest today Jeff Kabush needs no introduction you're going to get one anyhow in 1995 it's around the time Jeff started racing as a junior and his career that has spanned well over two decades includes 15 national titles, five U.S. mountain bike series titles, one World Cup win, nine World Cup podiums, and three Olympics. Perhaps Jeff is best known for his 2019 Grasshopper win low gap where he came from behind to outsprint Sandy Florin and Peter Stetna to take the win. Jeff is known for speaking his mind about situations in cycling, whether it's doping, the role of social media, sponsor expectations, or most anything there is. I really appreciate his dry Canadian sarcastic sense of humor and can relate to that well. Join us as we talk about what it means to be a pro today in the peloton things that have changed things haven't changed we'll talk about gravel bikes aka curly bars we'll talk about underbiking sponsor relationships what is essential for young riders as they're evolving in today's sports both in terms of incremental gains and what they need to do or not do or be required to do uh, when it comes to social media and self-promotion. I first met Jeff Kabush years ago when he was one of the members of the Canadian Mafia, a group of cyclists that included himself, Chris Nedden, Max Plaxton, honorary Canadian Barry Wicks and himself would come down for the winter to Sonoma County, base out of the godfather Roger Bartel's home in Healdsburg, and do their base miles. And that always coincided with the grasshoppers, especially old calves. Jeff's perspective on riding is unique, and being one of the elders in the sports allows him the confidence uh, to speak his mind with strong 
partnerships with his sponsors. Uh, he speaks from the heart, and he lo- truly loves the sport. His motto of riding till the fun stops really should be something that we all aspire to. So sit back and listen. The next episode of Fuerza Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete with Jeff Kabush. So you guys talked about doing your winter here, and um, I'm remembering the video that you guys did, and we were talking about a ride, which I'll be posting for people on on Vimeo. And I rewatch that sometimes, and I want to thank you for doing that, and I'll t- and I'll tell you why because it's back to like a real sweet spot for me when we were just winging it. It felt a little raw and edgy. Uh, you had to know, you had to be with someone to get all those turns. We were getting away still, not quite with permits, but we had some insurance. My kids were little. So it's just like the, this kind of the sweet spot. And uh, yeah, having that documented is great. And you wore a helmet cam or, or yeah, chest cam? Well, pretty hilarious. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it was Roger's camera, one of the original action cameras, VIO, I think it was called. But I mean, yeah, it was wired. So it was mounted on the helmet, but had a big, thick wire going to my back pocket where it had like... It's like the size of a brick, the little like battery pack in my back pocket. And uh, yeah, I mean, long form video, way long for today's attention span. But yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a fun memory to look back. Uh, Really fun social experience, hanging out with those guys, getting ready for the grasshopper. And then, yeah, catching some of the essence of the, the hopper, I think, having fun riding dodging through the back roads and down the old cow's descent and um yeah the battery went dead before the finish but i think it's kind of fitting like who really cares who wins yeah the day of the grasshopper as long as you're having some fun absolutely that was great and for me it was also great you know fantastic for one that was with roger and you guys and you know when i started the series it was to compete getting ready for other events and then I stopped doing that but to me it, it re- I really wanted to be this thing where we'd get together and enjoy just the fun of the competition adventure but I wanted like to really hang it out there and so we had the local folks and from Santa Cruz so to have you guys race and then like oh here's Jeff at the Olympics oh here's Max at the World Cup races yeah well I mean it's fun I mean it's always fun to be a bit competitive and push each other and yeah, I mean, it was always kind of fun because, like, I mean, yeah, we had other jobs, I mean, in the cycling industry, racing mountain bikes, and it's, uh, yeah, fond memories is always just a, a fun event we could fit in and um, wasn't a lot on the line, but, yeah, certainly we enjoyed racing each other. But. So that was 2009. This weekend was a Huffmaster, 2022, a lot of years in between, obviously the hopper is a little bit bigger and we're getting writ- written about and I'm trying to keep it, the vibe, real. Uh, are, are we doing a decent job of that? Was your was your weekend solid? I mean, yeah. I mean, I had fantastic ride this weekend at Hopmaster, man. It was just, yeah, just perfect day out there for ride. Beautiful loop, man, with the, the sun, nice warm day. The flowers were coming out bit of snow on the peaks and uh yeah had a good ride it was man it was uh competitive uh i would say whew, what a workout for sure but yeah i mean i had a good time and there's some guys for sure um the sports evolved and it's uh whatever you want to call this discipline gravel uh not necessarily fitting for the grasshoppers but there's definitely some guys um racing these things full-time and some prestige on the line 
but still super fun community. And uh, yeah, it's been a tough, I think, last couple of years for everyone. And it was just uh, fun to have a good hard ride and hang out in the parking lot afterwards and catch up with a bunch of people I haven't, haven't seen in a while. Yeah, and it was, I was glad that, you know, last minute you're in town, you're able to make it. And I just want to congratulate you on, on making the cut for the Grasshopper uh, Adventure Series. I know we had a lot of applications to go through. And, you know, you didn't exactly rise to the top, but you had some qualifications that made you a really solid candidate. And uh, I'm hoping that it that you can come out to more. Yeah, I'm uh, really grateful to be able to make the cut for the Grasshopper Series this year. Um, it's really uh, the the biggest series in the U.S., and so it's really important for my sponsorship right now to be able to be selected to this series. So um, I got to really thank you, Meg, for yeah, having me absolutely. be a and, part and, of it. And I'll be reposting the Vimeo, which is the major uh, video search engine these days, and so the metrics for the viewership for that should be going through the roof. <laughs> I uh, that. I, <laughs> I actually had to split uh, the old cat's video into two because at the time you could only have a 15-minute video max, so I had to make two accounts. And so you'll see it split across two accounts. And actually, yeah, you were talking about it the other week, and I tried to get on YouTube, but all of the uh, the other benefit is there's some great music that's copyrighted, and I couldn't upload it on YouTube. So it's uh, a very be a very expensive video to put on YouTube with all the copyrighted material. Awesome. Which is actually a mixtape from Barry Wicks back in the it was day. It's good. It's solid. Those songs are still hits. <clears throat> yeah, me and me and Wicks used to trade trade mixtapes. I mean, they're CDs by that point, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. But uh, another another throwback there. Yeah, I guess we're dating ourselves with 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 mix with mixtapes there, right? Yeah, mixed mixed CDs. Uh, now, joking aside, I do want to get into you know talking about something we were talking about on our ride, and I know you've written. Um, uh, and express your opinion ab- about this. And I'm curious, you, you talked about the athletes that were chosen or not chosen in the process for this new series, which which is the Lifetime Grand Prix. Um, and I'm wondering what is or was that process, aside from like should or shouldn't it be that, I wasn't really a- aware of that. So people listening, what is what was that series and, and what was that before we get into like what do you think about that? Can you just lay that out a little bit? The application yeah, process? Yeah, what, 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 first, I've never heard of an application. If you have a team or you sign up for yeah. a race, you get a lottery spot. The fact that what someone was applying for a series, like I just don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things about it that, I mean, obviously went into – the long, long form article. I don't know if a lot of people have read the the headline and misinterpreted some of it, but originally they, they announced late in the in the fall, I think November, that they're going to have this new series. And originally it was only going to be twenty men and twenty women that were accepted into this series. And um, I think once they realized the depth of the field, they increased that to thirty. But um, it was an online application. Um, talking a bit about yourself and what you could bring to the series and what you've done for the sport and uh, I guess yeah what makes you special in your social media and um, some commitment to um, be an ambassador for the series Um, and then they uh, yeah took a month to review all the applications and um, selected 30 riders and uh, male and female okay now I'm not you I don't have the results you have if i were you 
I would be taken aback that someone would be asking that, a three-time Olympian and multinational champion. Um, and it would be hard not to be a little bit flippant about that. I think one of the things I read in an article you wrote is that you could offer some constructive criticism. And you were, I think you were being facetious but serious, which I think is important in this dialogue and discussion about what are events, what do they constitute, who gets to race them, what's the prize money and stuff. Is that an accurate? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, when the details were first announced, I mean, uh, spoke out a bit on on Twitter, and yeah, people don't always get my sarcasm, but yeah, I had some constructive criticism and put some ideas forth, and I, I filled out the application and uh, honestly on how I felt about things and the fact that they were, I mean, asking riders to be ambassadors for the series but still had to pay full entry um they're getting a huge marketing benefit from using all these athletes and still having to enter but the biggest thing for me is like yeah this threshold that there's i mean yeah like a lot of really talented riders like we saw sandy sandy florin who's at the grasshopper this weekend and has proven himself obviously to be a top rider in the u.s i mean he's been on the um, national champion, used 23 on the mountain bike and was top three at one of the biggest quote-unquote gravel races, BWR San Diego last year. And yeah, obviously a beast on the bike, but guys like him that aren't as well-known don't have access to the series because they're not as well-known. And that's, I think, what triggered the article for me the most was that there's this threshold that you had to be accepted. You couldn't... I mean, I feel like sport is pretty democratic. I mean, there's always um, challenges for access, but once you're between the tape, it's pretty democratic. If you can prove yourself athletically, you can um, climb the ladder, and there's always challenges climbing the ladder in our sport, but everyone um, can sign up and prove themselves on the course, but that access point was kind of removed when you had to apply for the series, and people are trying to say, well, it's like, you know, trying to elevate the sport like Formula One, but I mean, this isn't Formula One. There's thousands of people entry and um, just a lot of contradictions. I don't think they they could have taken some feedback and um, I think their intentions were good, but um, I felt like uh, I needed to share my perspective and I did and obviously I wasn't selected and not here to debate whether I should be, should have been selected or not, but I wanted to voice my opinion because I knew that a lot of the other athletes would be afraid to voice any criticism and um, talking to other athletes. I know a lot of athletes had concerns, but um, were afraid to voice their concerns with some of the, the ideas that were implemented. And I mean, similar to other things I've been outspoken about clean sport or any issues I see in the sport, I feel it's important in my position. I mean, I'm in a, obviously a privileged position, uh, senior athlete in the sport, really securing my sponsorship. So I feel like it's uh, part of my obligation to, to speak out for the younger athletes and um, share my perspective. And I mean, obviously they didn't take into account any of my feedback this year, but hopefully, um, I mean, it's mostly for the athletes being involved to be aware of perspective I had and hopefully um, yeah and Sandy's a good example multinational champion but he's also an athlete he's a quite spoken young man who wants to do his job in sport he's not super active on, on social media like 
those who can do both of those things, of course, they're they're more marketable. But uh, my opinion, and after reading reading your article, I think you'd agree that that shouldn't necessarily be a requirement for an athlete to do their job. If they can grow into that and do both, I think it makes them kind of a you know more versatile and can get extra revenue. But to have to do that, that that doesn't seem fair. Yeah, I think I think that's a reflection I saw. Like, I mean. I'm outspoken now, but I mean, yeah, I was a pretty quiet young athlete and see that I've, I mean, I've grown into my role, but I really was kind of afraid for the young athletes that weren't kind of cut out or outgoing, more introverted, whether their their access in the sport, which is already hard enough, would be restricted even more. And I think what people misread the um, title of my article and some of my posts is like, it was framed as athlete or influencer, and of course it's not either or, but um, I wasn't saying that athletes should be paid just to be an athlete, but I feel like athletes should still be able to just be athletes if they don't want to focus on the financial sponsorship. They should still be able to sign up for these events and prove themselves because I think there should be still room in the sporting side of the sport for all kinds of athletes. Yeah, and, and I think what... The reason I'm bringing this point up, and I've already, you've already spoken this on podcast, it's not athlete or influencer because we I've had that discussion with every guest, with Pete and with Ted and with Katie Hall and uh, Katarina and Kate Courtney and Yuri, this, this thing of having to work as influencer. But what we're layering over is that was part of the application process to even participate in something. Yeah. And that's when it gets a little, a little sticky, you know, in, in speaking with Kate about it. And, and this sounds right on to me where, you know, young athletes, if they're looking to grow their following before their relationships and their results, that that's, that's the wrong order to do it. That one needs to f- focus on the incremental gains and, 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 you know, ha- having their results, having good relationships with their sponsors and with their teams working to get results. And then the following will come like, and she said she didn't have those following till she won that world cup, you know, and then athletes, you know, if they can do both, that's great. But, um, it's not necessarily something that that's that's required, but it's part of all of our lives. Even if you're not a pro, yeah, it, we, it's this device that we have to share and tell stories. So, um, and I mean that's part of a bigger conversation outside of that article. I've been mean, having with a bunch of people, and it really struck a chord across. I mean, yeah, different sports, having conversations with with young athletes, and I mean, yeah, went as far as a conversation with the Wall Street Journal is just like. Yeah, mental health for athletes and social media, and it's it's there's already a lot of pressure. I mean, not just within sport on social media, and it's really ramped up, obviously, in the last couple of years in COVID for athletes because it's become everything without events. And man, the pendulums really str- kind of swung with how important young athletes believe it is. Um, the pressure they're feeling to post online cadence and push themselves. And I think it's been distorted a bit how important that is. And so I've been trying to have discussions. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's part of our job, an important job if you want to make money, part of the promotion of the sport. But even some of the contracts in cycling, my own contracts have been really gotten distorted on how important it is. And I mean, hopefully with events coming back, I think it's... Um, 
kind of reframe, yeah, how important in-person relationships are. And I mean, that's talking to young athletes. They think, oh, if I can only get so many followers, I'll get the sponsorship. But I mean, yeah, in reality, a lot of these really successful influencers or whatever you want to call them with followings, I mean, it's a big part of why they're getting paid. But um, a lot of these relationships started with with personal relationships and getting to know people at events and building their platform that way, which then they, once they've built their platform, they can leverage that on social media. And, um, it's really important for young athletes to yeah realize that it takes time to build these relationships. And, um, yeah, if you win world championships like Kate, you can have a massive jump or if you have, uh, things happen in your career that you can't really manufacture you, you can like yeah. a big win at the grasshopper like like when you know yeah i mean yeah I, so on, <laughs> that was on my this, last big result pre-covid low that, gap that, um, too okay. good to be true okay we'll get to that one in just a minute <laughs> now this conversation i've had was again several others of, of the guests and some on the podcast and off let's say okay so you're sponsored by maxis this year right and you have been for a long time and there are people who are looking for metrics and they're talking return of investment. Are there measurable metrics for individual sponsorships that truly show a correlation of their dollars invested in an athlete and getting back? Or is, there, is it kind of like they pick a project or an athlete and then they already have a result that they're showing that justifies it? How, how does one do that aside from giving an athlete some glasses or a helmet, which isn't a big expense for them. We're talking about like money that's helping to pay your mortgage. Like how are there numbers that you look at or they look at and show you? They're trying to, but I think it's still, I mean, like all marketing, it's still a bit of an art. Like uh, I think, and that's part of the discussion I've been having. There's some companies that use artificial intelligence to try to analyze social media and the return on investment. But in my opinion, they're still really dumb metrics. Like, I mean, like how many times t- do they go to their page from your post, for example? I think there are some metrics that we're seeing more, even with the media and athletes more use on like YouTube where um, affiliate recommendations where you can see the direct click throughs, to website and purchase. I mean, you've seen that in media, how they're funding their journalism is affiliate links where you click through and um, they get a kickback if someone buys something as a direct link. And you're seeing that with some athletes on some platforms. But for the most part, like with social media, I mean, yeah, like all likes aren't the same marketing value. And so there are some companies that are kind of analyzing all that data, but it's still pretty dumb metrics for so I think it's still those sponsorship deals I think still come to down to a lot of trust and personal judgment, getting to know the athletes and how what kind of marketing value they can bring to the company. And I mean, yeah, luckily I have companies like Maxis I've been working with since two thousand four and um some of my value is social, but I do a lot of R and D testing and some of my value is just like the platform I've built, the respect for my kind of technical knowledge that people trust my opinion. And um, yeah, it's all cliches being authentic and providing 
good information and it's uh takes a long time to build that platform like i didn't take me years to build my my platform on and trust on social media which is important and to not do something that's going to do the opposite of that it doesn't take much for an athlete to misspeak to misspost to do something that can you know can have significant consequences whether it's at a bar or it's at the race or it's their opinions on politics right yeah, I mean, we we're talking about it like, oh, thank God, my I was uh, the internet wasn't around in high school because, like, I don't know if I would have graduated, I would have been, uh, yeah, put in jail for being a terrorist after playing around with pyrotechnics on school trips. Yeah, high high co- high consequences, <laughs> and um, you know, as as a high school teacher and, and raising kids, and and you're talking about young athletes, and so this is a this applies, right? So by young athletes, we're talking kids that come from their teens into their early twenties, and it's um, growing up where I, we're hardwired to to care what people think, right? To we reflect who we are based upon interaction with others, uh, but. I would say as the as the amateur social scientist, having been a teacher for 26 years and human for 51, it's like what really matters are our core group around us, our family, the loved ones, those who we trust, and their opinions and reactions and disappointments or approval. That that all matters, and that's how we form and, 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 and do better with situations. But when we're wired with that, with a like or a dislike or a negative comment or a criticism about your race, you could just say, oh, it's no big deal, how many, but you're still getting that that ping. And so the mental health, like if, if once you're older and you come into that social media, I think you're more likely to be able to manage that, but building that up from the start, I think is dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, yeah, young athletes trying to grow and figure themselves out publicly online it's really challenging like yeah like obviously i'm mature athlete and confident and this i mean it's even been good for me to kind of this whole discussion over the last kind of couple months about social media and health and how we can do a better job it's been good for me to refrain reframe things and i mean yeah it's definitely i've learned on social media over the last 10 or 15 years better habits i mean yeah it's designed to incentivize keeping you on the platform and making money and yeah just simple things like yeah deleting all the notifications because yeah it's just uh yeah that hit you know likes and comments and it's uh yeah designed to be addictive and um yeah figuring out strategies to use it effectively it's obviously part of my job but always but not have my life Kind of I swore I would never use it. So this was my journey to 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 an iPhone. I, I was late coming into it, and what happened was is there was a ride with Roger and a couple of pals, and on the way there they changed the meeting point and they were texting, right? <laughs> so I just I talked and I went and it didn't happen. I realized okay I need to be able to text. That was the first thing, <laughs> but I didn't realize you know the rabbit hole that 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 is the phone. And when I looked at my personal life and then the grasshoppers, when it really became clear is uh, when Specialized launched their Diverge and they launched at the grasshopper and they did this thing. And we, the second day was to hear and they brought all these in the way they did this, which I think is kind of common now. And this will bring us back to like the gravel and the evolution of, of the adventure bike 
is they brought in, you know, influencers from all around the world that landed in, got their diverges and rode them. And at the hopper, they started posting. So when they got to my house, instead of hanging out and talking at first, everyone just like sat down and started influencing. Like they got on their phones and I'd never seen this. I didn't even know this was a thing. And they just like lit up the freaking world about the diverge. Yeah. So number one, I was like, oh, there's there's this thing. And I, then I was questioned like, well, does this fit into my life and my business? And It's a battle. I mean, yeah, I've had a lot of, talked to a lot of athletes that are concerned and yeah, it's like, is it a net positive or net negative on their life? And um, I mean, with all jobs, it's like um, stuff you haven't managed. And I mean, yeah, obviously my career is still happening because I've been able to evolve and it's fun to kind of learn new skills and I've had to adapt and learn new skills to keep uh, being an effective athlete for sure. But yeah, you have to learn how to manage it because you can really, yeah, miss out on those connections. It's just like, yeah. People are glued to their phone even just, yeah. What about the other devices? Are you, a no, are you a number cruncher? Because I'm also, one of the things I've had is I can't do everything. So I don't keep track of my ride so much. Ride with GPS is great for doing it. But like Strava and data and people, I was looking at, at Alex Wilde's thing, all the numbers. Are you, are you a super number cruncher? Or are you a little more organic having like the perceived level of exertion and the feel and fitness? Are you ride, device, computer, analyze? Not anymore, but, uh, I mean, yeah, I probably went as deep as anyone has, like in my career when I was racing the World Cup. I mean, I was uh, mentored by a crazy Swiss guy named Jurg up in Canada who was way ahead of his time. I mean, um, with lactate, he was the little guy in Cornell Interior, BC, place that kind of brought these devices to North America and he was the sole distributor for all of North America for these lactate devices back in the day but yeah I mean I did a lot of training with with that when that was more common in the 90s and when as far as like doing regular testing look at my stroke volume and oxygenation with a lot of these devices that were brought over from the medical field and went deep dive when I was racing World Cups and Olympics and but the most powerful thing for me was like learning about my body and all this data and then being able to correlate that with the field. Like, I mean, did so much testing with like lactate, for an example, that, I mean, I could basically guess within 0.1 just based on feel what my lactate would be during testing. And I think that's like what I've been talking to a lot of the young athletes is, yeah, losing that feel because they're so focused on being driven by the numbers. Like even when they're doing a workout, they're staring at their device, trying to keep it at 400 Watts and like trying to squeeze it just to keep that number steady at 400 Watts instead of what I feel like you should be thinking about being fluid on the bike, like having a fluid pedal stroke and relaxed breathing and getting your coordination. And I think starting to see that, that loss of bit of feel. So I mean, it's incredibly powerful, the data and tools we have, but only if you're kind of, yeah, mating that with the feel on the bike and 
being aware of what's what's driving your workout and progress. Yeah, and you got to see the forest for the trees, and you have to see the scenery when you're actually out riding and training. Right, part of it is the fact that we're we're moving through these vehicles through space and time, which is which is fantastic, right? And not getting too obsessed with the numbers, but but well, science think, doesn't lie. Data doesn't. No, lie, right? I mean it's all keeping it in perspective. Like I mean it's hilarious when you see. Riders are prescribed a three-hour ride, so they get home at two hours and 58 minutes and are doing loops of their block to get exactly three hours or, yeah, trying to keep it exactly, you know, whatever wattage. And I think that's really important for young athletes if they're getting coached to be, and for coaches too, working with athletes, is to teach their athletes so they have perspective on what they're trying to accomplish so they can adjust and adapt and be aware of, I mean, all the inputs, the body's so complicated, you're never going to figure it out. So you, you need some perspective to kind of bring that all together. And um, yeah, in the end, the most important is kind of relating that all to the feeling of the body and making sure you can listen to the, the signs you're getting from all different directions. Right. So let's let's jump into a little bit and talking what, you know, you kind of joked around, what do we call this, this gravel, this event, this, this thing, which is... Um, evolving and i told you on the ride it wasn't until a few years ago that people don't usually believe me on this that i googled the word gravel like i didn't know that was a genre because for me it's not that i didn't care what else was going on around but raising two kids teaching putting on the events like i just wasn't outside of the bay area just wasn't aware of that it's a big thing um and connecting this with the young riders um Around here in the United States, the the biggest movement and most profound has been has been Nike. It's getting kids on bikes, which is um, which is I don't even you can, you can, they actually have some analytics to me, to measure that for the the health gains and for the uh, the mental health and for the um, vibrancy of the towns that they're doing this. Where do you see as young kids moving? What is what is the process of them moving into professional sports these days across the disciplines? Because it's not really clear to me. I mean, there is the you do the national races through USAC, you move to world, but now we have gravel. There's the high school league. What what is, do you have any predictions or of of where things are heading in your crystal ball? There, man, it's just it's really complicated. I mean, yeah talking to young riders like how do you get to where I am in the sport or I mean yeah someone like Stetton and Gravel or someone like you'd call an influencer like Phil Gamon or YouTuber I mean because yeah like when I started it was like a simple pathway I mean I grew up on west coast of Canada and Victoria where there's a lot of other professional cyclists and so the pathway for me was pretty clear I mean I put in my time progressed my athletic ability and moved up and I mean yeah I had to build relationships to build those sponsorships and I still think they're important but man there's just so many directions the sport has gone and so many responsibilities as an athlete now Um, you're expected to be everything to everyone from you know writing to podcasting as you're doing as photographer to making videos, uh, social media expert. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, you gotta, if you want to make a career out of it, I mean, yeah, you need a lot more skills these days than being fast on the bike 
And uh, yeah, that's tough with, with gravel right now. It's very much a top-down discipline. It's um, a lot of riders that already have a platform from careers in other disciplines kind of dropping into it. And there's not much, uh, not many, you're starting to see it, like athletes coming into the sport and growing up in, in this new discipline. But yeah, it's a challenging environment. But most of all, I think it's just still building those relationships with people um, at events, which obviously has been really challenging. Um, but yeah, getting to know those marketing people as well as relying on the athletes around you. It's a really small world, this uh, sport of cycling we're in and everyone knows everyone. And um, yeah, it just takes time. I mean, even back in my day, I mean, I was uh, racing at a high level, but I didn't start making a living until after I'd been to Olympics and finished top 10 Olympics that I really started to make a career of it. And I think um, it's a bit of an illusion how quickly you can make a career of it. So, I mean, yeah, I always encourage athletes to have a plan B and it's not not the worst thing to have a normal job and enjoy, enjoy racing at a high level, um, kind of match, match those two passions because it's... Uh, it's still really challenging to make a sustainable career out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> there's a lot of different events people could do, whether it's cyclocross or gravel or, or, or road racing or the Enduros, and you can compete for a long time and, and have a high level of competition while, while having your career. I've been amazed. Um, I told someone this weekend, I remembered when I was like, oh, man, I'm finally in, in the 3123s right back when I was a super expert slash semi-pro doing those races. And now I'm in the 50 plus and you look at the 50 plus field this weekend, the top was the same time as the 19 to 29, the 30, 39 and 40 to 49. So old guys don't always slow down. No. And I mean, most you better be, better be enjoying the process along the way. Um, I mean, that's what I, for sure recommend anyone trying to pursue a path in the sport. I mean, um, yeah, what you're going to remember is uh, not the results at the end of the day. It's, you got to uh, keep it fun. You keep saying that. Like, I, I use this quote because these are the good old days. You know, I think it was a little cliche when I said, I don't know if anyone said that before, but for me, people would get nostalgic about the hoppers when they were no when there was 20 people or when they were free or when it was $5 or $10 or when no one knew about them or before internet. And uh, we have this sort of idea that somehow in the past this was the good old days or mountain biking back in the good old days or gravel, yeah. gravel's rule, ruined back in the good old days. I, it's up to us, whatever this moment is, to really make it the best present. Yeah. And not somehow imagine there was there was this there was this best time. Um, and you're going to keep riding until it's not fun. Will it ever not get fun? When will it not be fun, Jeff Kabush? Uh, well, I don't know. I kind of laugh at some retirement announcements I always see because I'm never, I'm not going to retire from riding my bike. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's what attracted to me to the sport was a lifestyle. And, I mean, yeah, like, not like a professional swimmer when they, quit the sport they never want to see a pool again i mean i'm always gonna enjoy riding my bike and um yeah going on adventures like and i like that i like that about you and we can banter a little bit because part of your you know your canadian you know dry humor and sarcasm you know is about you know criticizing gravel 
but we could just acknowledge it's helped extend your career. It's given you other options of fun things to go and do, whether it's a grasshopper or it's unbound or it's, it's just another fun way to ride your bike until it's not fun and then you find another one that is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what, I mean, sure, I love the vents and seeing people at uh, some of these quote-unquote gravel, but most of all, I think I just love the riding and the routes and adventures on these new bikes. I mean, I spent a lot of, not so much when I'm up in BC, it's a bit too rugged and the mountain biking's way too good, but I spent a lot of time in Truckee where, yeah, there's not a lot of road riding, but man, the the routes you can put together on these new bikes, gravel, I mean, the Lost Sierra up there is kind of endless back roads and you can connect peaks to lakes and ride over to Tahoe and ride some really cool single track like the flume trail on a gravel bike and i mean that's what i've really enjoyed as these bikes have evolved uh with yeah wider tires you call it your curly bar bike right it could just be a hardtail with 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 flat bars and i think you could be having the same amount of fun yeah i don't know i mean the big thing <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah there's all this talk about us oh, just going or back, you're just trying to underbike and show you can do it being underbiked well there's something you, there's a little something fun uh, about being on the edge i mean i think that's like What's fun about cyclocross too is like you're doing stuff that you're not supposed to be doing on skinny litter tires. But I mean, yeah, it's like the drop bars for sure makes it. I mean, I love, I hate like having to drive to a ride. So it's, I mean, that's what's nice about these bikes too. Like you can ride comfortably on the road. I mean, if you just want to ride, do a whole ride on the road on these bikes, it's fine. But then you can, yeah, see a dirt road, you jump on it or some easy single track you can connect that through to another part and stay off the roads and i mean yeah it's a big thing up in the mountains uh, the roads are definitely busy up there around lake tahoe but yeah you can go off road and hardly see anyone for hours and i mean yeah that's what i'm focused on uh, i mean yeah i'm not chasing any series so i mean and gravel's kind of kind of a side gig for me so i just kind of pick events that kind of look look like fun and had a lot of fun like last year there were cool events and cool places like the Oregon gravel grinder where it's like uh kind of my favorite format it's like kind of uh, like the blind enduro on the mountain bike that i really enjoy it's kind of like point to point camping out and hanging out with people all day really fun event or yeah cool terrain cool locations to go go check out and just it's a bit uh yeah i don't do a ton of gravel but it's fun to like kind of look around and see events that uh look like it'd be fun to go check out yeah that 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 gatherings that gathering um wait till all these people riding gravel find mountain bikes and then we're gonna see see it booming again yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna make i'm gonna bring mountain biking back well we have the lake sonoma uh event in the grasshopper which is a stellar what 35 mile single track loop so to but I think, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Like, you've put together this series and routes because it's like, I mean, yeah, the coolest rides you have around here and, like, different areas. I mean, some areas there's better mountain biking, so the mountain biking's really popular. But, I mean, yeah, NorCal, like, man, it's just amazing for these kind of all-terrain rides. Like, you put the grasshoppers on, yeah, you got some mountain bikes, some roads, some all-terrain, and... Yeah, they've been labeled gravel, but they're just kind of what the coolest rides around here are. Yeah, I I, resist, I tried to get them to use the term <laughs> adventure bike, and I actually do see some people have adventure slash gravel. Now gravel, now I just say it because it's not worth the fight. It's not really a cross it's bike gone. anymore. Yeah. But now what? The crux is now the cross, which is the gravel, which is the, which is the something. Um, 
Speaking of, of events, and we were talking about this on this ride, which uh, low gap a couple of years ago, which which was which was stellar. I think that's what you made you, made you famous again. I think that <laughs> your your the, the hits on that one. Yeah. I'm joking, but serious. I think the 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 band the the activity on that video and the interview there there was a lot of attention to that. But the, I wanted you to describe how that played out. So I knew for low gap that there was potential for. So we had Pete. Uh, it was coming out and Sandy Florin and yourself, Aria was out there on a road bike. I told him, don't do it. Of course he <laughs> either flat or got lost and, uh, they got kabushed right at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's always, it's always funny. I mean, yeah, low gap, it's kind of 50, 50. The first half is pavement and yeah, savage start with a 20 mile climb. And I mean, yeah, end of January, I come down here yeah, often around Christmas and start riding. So I was about three weeks into training and it's always a bit of a question mark. And I'm like, man, there's no way I'm going to hang with Stetton on the climb. And so, I mean, yeah, that race started and I just had to ride that climb where I had to ride. And yeah, Stetna and Sandy took off, disappeared. And I was like, all right, they're gone. And found my found my people, as you do in a grasshopper, and cruised them. Yeah, I remember Lawrenceton Dam and area and... Uh, a couple of other guys, we just kind of rolled the pavement, kind of social, fun ride. And then we got to the dirt where it was super muddy. And I was like, well, I can ride faster here. I had my bike kind of, yeah, set up with, with fatter tires and low pressure, cush core. And I mean, yeah, I got to the top of the last low gap descent, which, you know, was about 20 minute ripping fire road descent down to the finish and got a time gap of three minutes. And I was kind of like, well no way I'm going to close up those guys. Uh, Sandy's on a mountain bike. But, I mean, yeah, just had fun ripping that descent and got down a couple miles from the finish and just started to catch some glimpse of some cyclists up ahead. And I was like, no way. And uh, it happened that Sandy was catching Pete within about two miles left and got onto the last couple miles of pavement. I could see them up ahead, 200 meters. I still didn't know if I was going to catch them. And we got to this last roller. I was just like praying, don't look back, don't look back, don't look back. And roller with 300 meters, like I was pretty tapped out. I was like, it's now or never. And just hit them as hard as I could, slingshot. And I remember Pete was just sitting on Sandy waiting for the sprint and saw me fly by and cussed a little as he realized what was happening and man i was just giggling it was too good to be true just yeah the the, the, <laughs> the race radios weren't working that day <laughs> but yeah just yeah slung shot and pete reacted but not enough time to to get me by the finish so uh, it was a good story too good to be true and uh, man yeah super one of the funnest ways to to win a race for sure yeah that was a fun one because remember the stories of tomac and yeah sandy's like yeah i think i got i think i got kabushed <laughs> on that one which yeah. is good to see tell me do you think are you alone in in the spot where you're right now where you've raced continually for your career and i think you told me you're turning 45 this year like i was thinking younger 40s and and to be in the top of that that's that's remarkable and to still find the events not just where you're doing well but where you're feeling fresh and you're feeling excited you're speaking for the younger athletes did you there's other older riders but like and I was on the ride I was thinking today it's it's just Jeff Kabush I mean Barry what's Barry doing he's off kayaking and skiing <laughs> and stuff and Sneddy's fallen fell in trees and stuff I mean 
Yeah, me and Decker are still uh, Kyle Decker. I mean, he's actually a couple years older, but yeah, I don't know. I think we'd. I mean, I just still really enjoy riding my bike, and I mean, yeah, I never thought I'd still be making a career of it. It used to be like, yeah, you think in kind of four-year blocks of Olympics and like, oh, I can keep going until, you know, 2012, 2016, and then off to call it quits. But yeah, I mean, like a lot of things, I think just right time, right place, kind of as my World Cup career came to an end, kind of these um, small trail bikes um, and endurance mountain bike racing kind of came back to the forefront with races like BC bike race being really important and some of the epic ride series and mass participation events in the, the U S became popular, which was a perfect fit for me in that point. And yeah, I've always built strong relationships with my sponsors and yeah, for sure. Racing's one part, but yeah, I've always really enjoyed kind of the technical product part of the sport the sport so providing value f- for uh, sponsors through through feedback and yeah i mean yeah i also have some opinions and enjoyed some writing and so it's been kind of fun yeah to evolve as an athlete and uh make a career in the sport and be able to continue it and man yeah riding riding keeps you young like i don't have this like picture of myself internally as like uh you know, mid forty as when I was younger, I used to think like, oh, forty. I don't oh, want to be that sad. Absolutely, old guy I hear on. you. I had a great ride with you today, and I'll <laughs> ride with people that are in their twenties. I would we pro ride, pro ride, pro ride, pre ride the uh, Huff Mass with Brandon Wirtz, who won it, who's like in his early twenties, and on the bike, you just feel whether you're the fastest or not. It, the the feeling is the same, like a well, kid. You just feel like it. A- <laughs> and then I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm all gray. I was like damn, you've been doing this a long time, but you're on the bike and it, it just feels so good. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm still racing with all these guys that, I mean, yeah, it could be my son. And so like, I mean, I feel like I'm, yeah, like I'm a senior athlete, but I feel like I'm their contemporaries, but I have no idea what, what they think of me as like, oh, old guy. Hey, trust me, What's they think, they think like? you're old. My students, <laughs> I'm old, old. They have no, they have no idea. The influencer. I yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, lucky, uh, don't have any kids either and just uh, still riding my bike and really enjoying it. And yeah, I think that keeps you mentally pretty young. I mean, I think it's, yeah, Blick who had always said, yeah, age is just a number and definitely feel like feel like that. And I mean, yeah, it can still... And it is just a number until it's not a number, right? And, and we, and we yeah. know that. And, and, and part of us is getting older. We see our parents getting older. We see things happening. We had COVID and, and not taken for granted this window in time that, you know, in previous generations for athletes that maybe didn't, didn't last as long or, or, or live as long. So really, you know, appreciating that these old good old days can extend for, for a long period of time. And on the bike, unless you've had really bad luck or crashes, like it's not a super high impact sport for your knees and for your hips, right? If, If you're a runner or a skier or a hockey player. I think, yeah, for me, I mean, I know how good it feels to, feel good and be healthy and I think that's what motivates me is like yeah just having that feeling and being fit enough to enjoy riding my bike and exploring and yeah I definitely have to be a bit more careful these days getting old I can't uh, sometimes my, my body can't quite keep up with my mind but yeah if I'm careful I can still squeeze out some good performances and yeah, absolutely yeah. Uh, another thing that we've been able to see having ridden for you know since the 
80s is the change in, in equipment, right? And I know you posted about this, and I've still got one hanging in there. Is you know, a uh, steel bike, 26-inch wheel, rim brakes, canties. I think I replaced the canties, and now I have you know V brakes and my and my bar ends. Um, and I looked at the bikes, which are your bikes, which is the Open and the Yeti. I mean, the machines that we get to ride right now. Do you ever just stop and look at your bike and you're working it on? You're like, what is this? And how fortunate am I to be on this machine? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of really great bikes out there, and it's yeah hard to imagine how it's going to progress as much as it has. We've seen in the last twenty or thirty years. It was fun, kind of in COVID. Obviously, had a lot of time, and um, I've only really kept three bikes in my career, and as the three bikes I went to Olympics in 2000, 2008, and 2012. And it's pretty funny looking back at the technology. I mean, they're all hardtails, but man, it's like, yeah, remembering what we used to ride, I mean, and some super technical stuff up in BC. I mean, but yeah, like my tires back in the day on 26, I ran 52, 55 PSI. And it's pretty, yeah, mind-blowing to like, man, how did we have any grip? And I mean, yeah, our our brakes were crap, and I think that's how we like survived a lot. You just couldn't slow down, so speed solves a lot a lot of issues. And uh, man, I'd love I love to gotta put a bit of work into them, but it'd be fun to get them up and running and go to go do a ride on like yeah my bike from two thousand that I still have. But it's yeah pretty dramatic. Uh, I mean, it's all small changes, but we've come a long long way and it's uh yeah it seems like golden age for bikes right now i mean yeah there used to be some really good bikes and some really shitty bikes but it seems like for the most part um there's just a lot of good bikes these days yeah absolutely so part of this the podcast with fuerza inside the mind of the ridden athlete almost didn't occur to me to ask you because you seem so balanced and centered and, and grounded and kind of, you know, even keel and, and perhaps that's just your disposition and your personality, uh, your upbringing, um, small towns, freedom, the lifestyles you created. But I know as athletes, and we talked about this with leaving out the social media, which doesn't seem affected you when you're younger because it wasn't a thing. Like, like what are the biggest challenges, uh, to keep yourself in a place uh, where you're balanced mentally. You're not going into the dark space, whether it's being uber critical or overtraining and getting yourself into depression. And I know it's a difficult thing to for a lot of athletes. When you were at your the stress of training for the Olympics and the pressure of that, do you find has that been not difficult for you or is that something that you've had to get help with or to manage in in, in, in ways? I mean, I think I had pressure, um, but it's never been a huge barrier for me. I think, um, I mean, I went, I had a lot of struggles early in my career. I mean, we haven't talked about doping in sport, but I think something that helped me mentally, but also through that period was just like I was more intrinsically motivated um, by the process and working on myself, especially during that period in the sport where the results weren't coming, I was more motivated just seeing my progress in in the sport and working on myself instead of putting so much value on the end result. I think that's where it's challenging that people think if they can just 
get that one result that's going to change change our life when it can be even myself dealing with that like man you put so much focus building up like to olympic race and then after that it's a major mental letdown and um i think the biggest thing is just yeah keeping perspective on on sport and life and and for sure in sport knowing knowing what's important i mean i think there's so many things to stress about as an athlete and learning about i mean i was in my in my career always tried to keep learning and not think i know everything about the sport and i think it's been important to learn about the sport training nutrition mental i mean i've been a student of the sport and getting that perspective on what's important knowing that like yeah one thing isn't gonna make or break a weekend or a race and it's that balance of keeping everything in perspective and um, not having that thinking that the stress of if one thing goes wrong, it's that's going to ruin your race or weekend. And, um, and an athlete has control over focusing on the process. Like that's what you, you can do. And the result, you hope that comes from that. But that's worrying about something that's not really – it. it not real in a sense until you're there and then it's in the moment, right? So you're managing those, those, that process. Was there a point with doping? And we talk about doping in general, so specifically affecting you, uh, I think you lost an Olympic spot. Yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, it was pretty rampant in the sport. Uh I mean, I mean, all through, yeah, the late nineties through 2004. I mean, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, in 2004, the two Canadians who went later admitted to take an EPO. Um, just once, though. Just once, that one time, trying to qualify. So, yeah, that was a disappointment, but um, would have could have been, yeah, was crushing. It mo- was it motive? Was it like, okay, fuck this, I'm done with this sport? Or was it, or did you then get back to the process, focusing on what matters to you, the process? Because you didn't know that that was going to go away and you somehow your results would then start to to stack up again, right? There wasn't a guarantee that was going to happen. No, and I think, uh, I mean, I was lucky enough, I was talented enough to survive. I mean, I'm still amazed at some of those results that I got back in the, the heyday of, of EPO. But I think, yeah, like I said, I was more intrinsically motivated by the process and progression in my sport, learning about the sport, learning about myself and, I mean, yeah, that's one thing I recommend too. Like, um, I was going to school too, so I had balance in my life. Um, I didn't graduate. Uh, my engineering degree I did, it was a co-op program, so it took quite a while. I didn't graduate till 2003, so even when I was making a living, a career, I had balance in my life with school and distraction. And, um, yeah, who knows why I made different decisions than a lot of athletes at that time to race clean, but... Um, I think it's just where I took my motivation from. Um, wasn't motivated by the results and or ego and glory. It was more like, I mean, it would have ruined the reason for doing the sport. And um, yeah, well, yeah. good, good on you for that because I mean, uh, the idea of racing and results and competing. I mean, that that is driven by ego. That's our desire to get better and to do it at the higher level and the meaning for it, as opposed to just put it out there on your resume or to, to then 
I don't know. It's the, I think the idea I've I've struggled with the concept of competition for a long time as a yeah. as a high school athlete. I was up until eighteen. That's all I did three sports a year, and I just stopped. I thought I was done. I thought competition was bad. I was burnt out, and I realized I need this as as a person. I need this this process. I need this challenge. And when I discovered mountain biking after college, I was like, I'm not done with this, but it's still struggling. And as a professional athlete, well, still, it's also I your mean, check, right? I it mean, pushes you to. Yeah, your competitors in competition pushes you to grow as a person and get better. But I think it's, yeah, important to keep it all in balance. Like I hate seeing like, man, I can't imagine being an Olympian this past cycle of like. Oh gosh. I mean, I just hope those athletes were enjoying it along the way. Just I mean, they didn't even get to stay afterwards. They did the thing and they were in their little group and had to leave, right? So you didn't get the the process, the cultural experience either. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I I had some decent results, but what I remember from the Olympics wasn't the races so much, but it was the experience in the, the village and hanging out with the athletes. I remember seeing a photo of you taking shots with the Chinese uh, basketball team. Did that really happen? Yeah, me, well, me and Yao Ming, yeah, we had a little drinking <laughs> contest <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Yeah, we had uh, what little, were you drinking? a little viral uh, Chinese media incident where, yeah, got bored at the closing ceremonies and we went and started shuttling beer from the concession and eventually got Yao Ming to have a little drink did you, did you challenge him to one-on-one uh well i mean i the first beer i he i mean basketball oh no i and i was really disappointed he kind of didn't make it back to the olympics in 2012 because i kind of wanted a rematch so it'd be fun to bump into him I, we traded we traded pins i still have a chinese olympic pin on my accreditation from 2008 but it'd be fun to bump into him again see if he remembers that's great memories man that's that's beautiful <laughs> stuff but yeah i mean i just like hope athletes aren't putting like all their self-worth into like the Olympic achievement and are enjoying the process because I mean, yeah, you never know. It's a sport. I mean, I worked my way towards Beijing, which for me was a really, the race was really disappointing. Like I was at the peak of my career, uh, but had some mechanicals there and that's mountain biking. And like, and then it's, yeah, you get the one shot every four years and, yeah, my Olympic moment was drinking with Yao Ming, but um, I mean, I still, yeah, really enjoyed the process and not put too much importance on one thing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's having balance in your life. And, and I mean, luckily in our sport, I mean, there's so many different events that you can reset pretty quick, but um, yeah, I just hope, yeah, athletes enjoy the process and results are great to motivate you, but yeah, not to put too much self-worth into those achievements. Yeah, you hit some good things about the balance, about the process, about having every other things that you know are, are filling up your life and giving you value. And um, you know that's a good thing for the listeners and for the young folks out there to 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 take to heart. Um, you know, it's a long progression to that, and there's no guarantees. And and though we like to race our bikes and be first to the finish line, I often say that like you know our, our lives aren't a race. I certainly don't want to be the first one to the finish. Right, and that yeah. means it's the process. That means it's enjoying, uh, learning and improving in our challenges. Uh, and oftentimes, those challenges come when when we don't expect them and when we're not quite ready. Whether it's COVID or a relationship or a health issue with someone, right? So it's like, yeah, gotta keep keep the wheels spinning for sure. So I want to segue into a little segment here, and then we'll kind of you know talk a little about what's coming up ahead and. Uh, I call this this or that, and so I'm just going to give you two things, and you 
tell me which one. Right. Shoot. Mountain bike or gravel? 100% mountain bike, man. <laughs> Hot or cold? Oh, I love the contrast, but uh, I'll go with, with hot. I'm getting soft in my old age. Pasta or Mexican food? Mexican. Sunrise, sunset? Sunset. Climb or descend? Descend. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Yuri said flats. <laughs> he put a third in there. That's not in there. Fix it or bring it in? Uh, fix it? I don't know. You work on your own bikes mostly? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Man, it's all all in privateer. It's no mechanics in. for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, solo or group ride? I'm definitely a bit of a lone wolf. I mean, I'm. I'd say I'm lazy socially. I really enjoy getting together, but, uh, I mean, yeah, growing up in a small town, bit of a lone wolf for sure. Recumbent or arrow bars? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have to, if I'm riding by myself, arrow bars are fine. Okay. My only objection is group rides, mass start events, safety first. <laughs> Paper maps? Or computer, right, GPS, Strava? Uh, I take more pleasure out of looking at paper maps, for sure. I mean, I use the digital, but I still don't trust them 100%. I feel like, uh, I mean, a story like, I remember that's what I really enjoyed. Talked about I grew up on this. uh, My parents were my parents live on Hornby Island, and I still remember... I mean, I kind of maybe a bit obsessive compulsive, but it, I mean, I really enjoyed figuring out where every single trail went on the island. And I wish my parents had kept it, but I like wrote every single trail and drew my own map out of the of the the whole island and all the trails that I kind of at that time just learned from friends the names and draw it all out. But I mean, even like yeah, recent like in COVID. Did some of the rides like uh, White Rim and Cocapelli, but like I like to be able to visualize and picture the whole map in my head because uh, yeah, I still don't still don't trust the devices one hundred percent. That's for sure. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to pan out enough. And I think the way I got to know this area, um, having grown up here but not being a cyclist, and I moved back as I was landed in Occidental, which isn't a bad place to land in. But I bought the USGS Topo maps, and I cut off the edges and tape them all together from Lake Sonoma to Point Reyes. Yeah. And started figuring out, okay, which what's ride the roads and then let's ride ones that looked like kind of roads. And the natural thing is like, well, let's connect the other roads through other people's property, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't necessarily recommend, but okay, where are their parks? Where are their state parks? And so then when you come to the computers, it makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pleasure from like, Getting to know, I mean, looking at the maps and having those question marks and going and exploring it all and then getting and gathering that knowledge and then figuring out what the, you know, perfect loop or how to piece it all together is. Yeah, but let's talk about paper maps because you're you're in Canada and you obviously rode before that. This was my first experience. I'm good with maps. I like maps. My friend was in Eugene 
This was in early 90s. I said, hey, there's some riding out towards Oak Ridge. I get a U.S. Forest Service map. That's great. I take up this trail, go to N91-2 or something like that, and you get up there and there's nine roads. Right? So it's not that they're not right sometimes with these maps that we get, but there's more than that. Have you had experiences with you're trying to navigate yourself and you're getting deep in the woods? Have you, Jeff Kabush, well, that's, have you uh, ever been lost and worried about grizzly bears? Uh, not not about grizzly bears. I've only got lost. My biggest getting lost experience was actually uh, when I was 12. I actually lived in England. My parents, both teachers, did a teacher exchange. I remember we went on a family ski trip to Austria and at the bottom resort, I saw some sweet powder down the hill and I was like, saw a few ski tracks going down. I was like, I'm going to follow those tracks and skied down that for five minutes. And then it turned into an access road and just kept skiing for like 20 minutes and ended up in this tiny Austrian village where no one spoke English. And they kind of understood, took me to the one local bar and ended up, I was about 20K away from the ski resort and they found the one English guy in town and had to get a ride back. Let me guess, you didn't whip out your your phone and your parents didn't have you on location back then? No, man, it was... Uh, Man, so much more complicated going to Europe. I remember just as a junior. Man, I had to like... Uh, man, yeah, kids these days, so soft with the technology going to Europe and having a cell phone and instructions. Man, it was and just trying to winging navigate it. a town and the metro and everything. That that must have been well, complicated. Having to try to figure out how to dial from a payphone with all the area codes. <laughs> yeah, it is. And to find your friends if you lose track of them, right? Oh, yeah. I just remember as a junior... I was doing both downhill and cross country as a junior. And I mean, yeah, there was no organized trip. I flew into Frankfurt and had to figure out the trains with my two bike boxes and luggage, transfer a couple of trains, get down to Freiburg and figure out the phone at the, the train station and call the German guest house and try to explain to them I want to talk to the Canadians and get a hold of them to tell them come pick me up and then ran out of money over there and luckily my high school friend was visiting his German family and lent me a couple hundred euros to get through the trip because my bank card didn't work <laughs> but that, that's beautiful and I bet what you had to do after that is you, you told that story to your friends and your family and they sat and listened to you. If that happened now, it would have already been on your Instagram story and you would have got home and they said, it, I already yeah. know about that. <laughs> now, remember, I, I'm, I am nostalgic about this. You, you, we used to have to tell stories to people. We still do that, but like yeah. now it's front loaded and he had to sh actually physically show them pictures of a trip, like, hey, check this out. And, like, they, they would look at those pictures. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, and crappy pictures, too, man. We oh, get yeah. so much better photos now. But oh, I know, and you can just delete them. I don't miss that part. You don't miss Man, that. I wish I had some more, uh, yeah, photos from, from back in the day. Because, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good stories to tell, though, for sure. So I didn't quite finish this, but this, okay. this made me think of things, something that I meant to ask you earlier, and this was connecting back to um, athletes nowadays and, and I don't know, having never never been a pro, maybe it hasn't changed that much. But, um, you know, most sports have teams and you have a contract and you're part of a team and collectively you have a result and a goal. And even within, say, road cycling, you know, you have a team goal. There's individual results that need to happen, happen as well. Um, but now it seems... 
and I can't think of it. Definitely not in gravel. There's still road teams which aren't making a lot of lot of money. I know Legion's trying to change that, but um, is it sustainable to have? I mean, to have to then hustle your own way into that's kind of back to what we were talking to about that before. But like, and it's interesting that Pete Stetna is doing this the privateer thing because I remember when he was with Track. Um, or maybe it's prior to that, the idea of putting a number on the back. So you have this kind of um, name recognition moving from team to team that could follow you. But it's like uh, not being part of something or a goal. But maybe in mountain biking, it wasn't as much much like that. I don't know if I'm expressing myself well, but like the difference of being a single or as opposed to part of a team. Um just how difficult the new model is i mean yeah or even if you were yeah how, how difficult the new model the model is and you, you know it's expected to to be an individual you know i guess as a mountain biker i guess not that great of a question the comparison because on the road you have your team results well, well. i mean it was similar on the mountain bike and a lot of the i mean team managers on the road and the team principals on the mountain bike the athletes were very separate from building those personal relationships um, and definitely through my career, I mean, even when I started racing for Kona, uh, which was my first kind of team sponsor, it was just kind of me and my, uh, teammate buddy, Peter Wedge, and we were just at the races by ourselves. And so we built a lot of relationships just cause we hung out at Shimano and got to, to know the tech guys there and built those personal relationships cause we didn't have a team manager between us and the sponsors. And I mean, that's, what's carried through a lot of those relationships to where I am now, but um, it certainly can be much more valuable. I mean, I think a lot of the sponsors want that direct communication and relationship built with the athletes, but it's, man, it's a lot more responsibility for sure. I mean, um, some people are doing really well, but it's um, very difficult to get to that spot. Like yeah, and myself it's a lot of work. or Stetna or Ted, we already had a platform yeah. to build so as an athlete, as a racer now, like like say people are thinking about this and they're trying to trying to make a living. What what is that number? Like what is making a living? Uh, good question. I mean, it's there's not a, it, a, a like a minimum wage for it, like they've done in some sport. There's, you're, I guess, you're shooting at this number based upon your known expenses. Is that left to everyone to, to just figure out what, what's manageable for them, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, how I dealt with it in my career was talking to a lot of my peer group, um, some got contemporaries, like, um, and it's all, like, private in our contracts, but I talked to guys like Adam Craig or Todd Wells, who has, like, competitors, but good enough friends that we could discuss, like, how much each other was making. But, man, it's just, like, it's even more complicated now, like what your plot. Some people who don't want to say, or who are told not to say. I imagine that that happens in some of the teams. Is there total trans? Is there transparency within within cycling? No, very little transparency, which makes it. Um, and often it's in the contracts that it's confidential. Not so much now with individual contracts, but often with with team contracts, it was um, supposed to be confidential. I think just giving the teams more leverage in negotiation. But, I mean, yeah, it's like much more complicated to assess a value now, even like 
if you're American or like myself, Canadian or where you are in the world or your platform or yeah, how long, how long you've been with a sponsor, obviously like my value with Maxis is much higher because I'm identified with a company, have a really good relationship. Whereas someone of my status come in first year contract with Maxis, they're not going to be as valuable because they don't have the credibility with that brand if they've represented three different tire companies in the last three years. Yeah, gotcha. B- bottom line is no shortcuts, takes time. Yeah, for um, sure. Short, short. And I mean, the biggest thing for young athletes is to yeah network and talk amongst themselves to determine a value. But even like from one grip company to another, it depends on where they are in their marketing cycle, whether they're launching a new product, if they've got marketing dollars to spend. I mean, just because you like a product doesn't mean that their marketing budget is going to be right. Absolutely. Big so that was it. that was a good tangent there. But thank you for your answer. Okay, I've got I've got two left here. So uh, astronaut or sailor? Uh, astronaut, I think sounds way cooler. Have to or get to? Get to. Good answer, Jeff Kabush. So speaking of get to, what do you get to do this year? What's on what's on tap for you as we wrap up this podcast? Tell me, I mean, you've got the ticket to fun. What, what what's what's your fun train this year? I'm hoping we can I haven't seen your calendar posted yeah, yet. Mean, Have you posted? No, it's on my to do list. But uh yeah, hoping man, we can get back to some planning. But yeah, starting off uh with some mountain bikings, throwback, going back to the Cactus Cup, which should be fun and Bob Rocks, little stage race to start things off. Always a good excuse to go out and do some cool riding there. And Sea Otter, uh, always hopefully get good fun to get to see everyone there. Uh, whiskey off road. I mean, um, throwing a few fun events. Haven't done. Looking forward to sounds like some underbiking. Do the Rule Three. I signed up for down Bentonville. Uh, midsummer, probably the one I'm looking most forward to is the Stone King Rally. Um, six-day blind enduro from legendary guy Ash who started Transfervance, his new event over there. That's different. Is that like Luke Skywalker thing, like like a blindfold over your... <sighs> just just on site. No one, no one knows gotcha. what you're riding, so there's no stress, no practicing. Nice. Uh, go from little village to vil- little village, uh, down through Italy to the coast of France. Um and yeah, still big question marks, bunch of stage races, BCBR and different things packed in the end of the, end of the year. But yeah, just kind of piecing it together as we go. Sounds, sounds phenomenal. Well, anyways, uh, thanks again for your time. I look forward to, uh, you know, keeping abreast of uh, your advocacy for just uh, keeping sport fun and uh, for following along with your, with your, with your season and, uh, living vicariously through through your pro fun tour. Well, always really appreciate you making me welcome at the Grasshoppers and it's uh yeah, always for sure if I'm in town and can make it, really enjoy making it out and having a good time with the NorCal crew. Right on brother, and your application for this series will always go straight to the top. Don't you hearing that from me? Uh, much appreciated. All right. Cheers. Thank you.